Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. This is a Currents episode. Currents are shorter and less heavily produced than our full-length episodes and generally focus on a single topic. As always, links to books, articles, and organizations mentioned are available on the episode page at jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. If you want to comment on this episode or just want to shoot the breeze, you can find me on Twitter at Jim underscore Rutt. That's R-U-T-T. If you haven't yet, be sure and check out the new Game B film at gamebfilm.org. All right, that's enough for shameless promotion today. Today's guest is Greg Lukyanov, president of FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights and in Education. You can find information about them at thefire.org. Welcome, Greg. Ah, thanks for having me. Yeah, this should be a good conversation. Extremely timely, as we'll see as we get into it. In addition to being president of FIRE, Greg is also the author of some very interesting books, Unlearning Liberty, Campus Censorship and the End of American Debate, Freedom from Speech, and FIRE's Guide to Free Speech on Campus. And most recently, he co-authored The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure with Jonathan Haidt. Yeah, I read that book right when it came out. I said, damn, that's a good book. (laughs) Thank you. Also, as I often do, in full disclosure, I should make a note that FIRE has been very helpful to the MIT Free Speech Alliance, which I'm a co-founder, officer, and director. So with that, let's jump into it, Greg. Why don't we start out just sort of with the basic. What's the mission of FIRE? Sure. Uh, The mission of FIRE is to protect and sustain freedom of speech, academic freedom in higher education. Um, That's what we were founded to do in 99. Um, We've been around since 1999. I joined in 2001. But since then, uh, partially because we realized we can't really save higher ed without reaching more people, we started doing more K through 12 work. Um, We started, you know, doing things like making documentaries about the threats to uh, free speech and comedy um, that was coming from some of the campus norms, what we called outrage culture at the time, because it was 2015 and it didn't have a name yet. We did a documentary called Mighty Ira about Ira Glasser, the old head of the ACLU up until 2001. But uh, we realized that we're, we're going to have to do a lot more public education and really explaining some of the most basic things about freedom of speech. So to that end, we've been, uh, we've been doing an advertising campaign that has included ads about one tagline is cancel culture, cancels culture. But another one, you know, showing the March on Washington and saying without free speech, there's no I have a dream to make the point of the role of free speech in the civil rights movement. Um, But most excitingly, uh, we had an ad that ran during the Olympics with Inez Cantor Freedom talking about, um, uh, he's a basketball player, uh, formerly of the Celtics, uh, about how important free speech is and how different it makes the U.S. from um, his home country of of Turkey. Uh, And that's, we were able to run that during the Olympics. Uh, which felt pretty good because Inez is a pretty well-known critic of G and he was wearing a free Tibet t-shirt um, when he was saying it. Yeah, I love that. One of the things I really like about you guys is that you're nonpartisan. I periodically go through your case file to look at the cases that you're dealing with and handling. And you definitely deal with censorship from the left as well as the right. And then I got kind of a chuckle out of some bits of it that I'd call non-political, bureaucratic, ass-covering, and defiance-crushing, right? 
So you guys are neither tools of the left or the right, but you are straightforward advocates for free speech. Yeah. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned that third category, too, because you could be forgiven if you pay too much to the sort of culture word uh, discourse. Either um, everything's just political correctness run amok and it's just the left getting people in trouble. Or if you listen to the people who write articles titled things like cancel culture isn't even a real thing, they always argue that, well, cancel culture is a real thing. It just comes from the right instead. So they even contradict themselves. And we and there's probably not a single case they mention in that that happens on campus that they don't know about because of us. But there's this huge middle category of cases where it's just, you know, uh, an administrator doesn't like a professor or a particular student, doesn't like the way a book or, or quote made the school look, um, and they, they go after the student or the faculty member, oftentimes for very petty reasons. Yeah, like there's one university that keeps turning up for this kind of bullshit crap all of Tarleton, I think it is. Someplace in Texas, you know, kind of seized the student newspaper and then claims it was never an independent paper. And, you know, what the hell? Just like, obviously, somebody got their tail twisted and didn't like it. Yep. Yeah, we've seen some uh, kind of funny repeat of offenders. The Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute was a bit of a bummer because it's a fairly prestigious technical college uh, in upstate New York, and they were trying to shut down the student union as, as in like the representative body of students. And when students were trying to protest on campus, they actually argued that they couldn't protest on campus due to eminent domain, um, which is one of those things like you really don't understand what that term means at all because that was uh, that was a nonsense sentence. So we, we, you really do see what I describe as kind of like the old-fashioned Dean Wormer type of uh, censorship. Yeah, it does actually bother us at the MIT Free Speech Alliance that the chair of the nomination committee for the MIT Corporation, which is our equivalent of a board of trustees, is the president of RPI. Oh. <laughs> Yikes, right? Fortunately, she's resigned from the presidency of RPI, I think effective this summer, and maybe she'll retire from being head of our nominating committee too, because that is amazing how often RPI has managed to do something that's just sort of grossly abusive. Yeah, no, it, it, it's it, it's interesting. Like DePaul University, although a lot of times the schools that get our Lifetime Achievement Award um, for violations of freedom of speech, we do that every year, um, are schools that maybe aren't as big of a name, like DePaul University really earned theirs. Syracuse, better, better known, but definitely earned theirs like crazy. Uh, this year was actually Yale. When I was doing an evaluation of a lot of the cases we'd had, partially after we wrote the piece on MIT, um, which you can find at thefire.org, we decided to also do a comprehensive piece on Yale because there was a new case that people hadn't heard of. And in the process of doing that, I'm like, wow, there's been like a really serious case pretty much every year since 2015. And there were like three bad ones last year. So so they are the proud recipient of uh, FIRE's much coveted Lifetime Achievement and Censorship Award. Yeah, I've been following the brouhaha about the Yale Law School and some of the ridiculous goings on there. Yeah, I mean, there was a time when we could think that that law schools were a little better insulated from this for reasons that are kind of similar to the sciences. Like in law, you're, you're supposed to be able to argue both sides of an argument or, or all sides of an argument. You're supposed to be able to uh, have, you know, not be too easily offended because, you know, a lot of time different kinds of law can be pretty grisly affairs. But seeing some of the exaggerated nonsense we've seen going on in, in the Yale Law School over the past couple of years, it's, it genuinely worries me. 
Yeah. And that actually brings me to my next point. As I was going through your recent cases, one that hopped out at me for exactly the reason you just enunciated that, huh, at a law school, Emory University School of Law, the student government denied recognition to a free speech group. I'm actually pretty used to that. So like if if you're free speech, uh, I've been hearing lots of really bad stories um, lately about when even just the phrase free speech gets mentioned, um, even if it's the title of a book, the reaction is immediately, you know, oh, these people are pro hate speech. And it's like, wow, this is what I call a slow motion train wreck. I was in law school from 97 to 2000. And I worked at the ACLU of Northern California while I was there as an intern. And you could already see this happening, that essentially um, there was an attempt to, you know, the the free speech movement started in Berkeley in 1964. Around 1974 is when you started getting like the real big prominent victories for free speech on campus for the rights of students in addition to the rights of professors. But then by 1984, the real 1984, you started having schools start passing speech codes, restricting speech if it was considered to be racist or sexist or otherwise offensive. These, of course, were all defeated in the courts of law. These were all laughed at you know, off campus by liberals and conservatives alike for being ridiculous. But nonetheless, even though these were decided as being completely unconstitutional, when we started looking into it in the in the early 2000s, that a lot of these schools had speech codes, about like 79% of them had ridiculously bad speech codes. So knowing that history, you could see the slow motion train wreck of eventually the campuses, which had been once so pro-free speech, starting to change the argument around it. So eventually, it was pretty clear even back then that the argument was going to be led by people like Richard Delgado and Mary Matsuda to to dismiss free speech as a right-wing argument because they spent decades trying to turn it into that. Yeah, it's pretty scary. Your summary of the case says, despite the Emory University Law Schools group fulfilling all criteria for recognition, the body, the SBA, refused recognition, criticizing the nature of this group, i.e. being about free speech, which has become a bugabear in, in some circles, and because of the harm that could result from discussions of race and gender. What the hell? We'll get to this absurd idea of harm in a few minutes. But, you know, this just strikes me as what the heck? I mean, it could be in the onion. You know, a law school says no to free speech because of the harm that could result from discussion. I mean, what the hell kind of lawyers are these going to be, right? Yeah. Now, if you told me it would would have gotten this bad uh, this fast, say back in 2010, and I'd already been working on campuses defending like truly ludicrous uh, attempts at censorship for, you know, since 2001 at that point. But how bad it's gotten just over the past three or four years um, is something that I, I never would have expected. Yeah, it does seem to be accelerating. So let's do a little digression here. It's actually part of the same story into the book you wrote with Jonathan Haidt, The Coddling of the American Mind. And to this Emory case, this concept of harm. What the hell's going on with this modern concept of harm, which includes a theoretical discussion at a law school? Yeah. Well, the funny thing about the harm idea um, is that uh, that speech can be harmful 
is that students tend to present this as if it's this new kind of more sensitive or sophisticated idea. And professors um, who are, you know, anti-free speech tend to use it as kind of like a new rationalization. And whenever I talk about this, I'm like, no, no, this is a really old idea that essentially there's no meaningful distinction between the harm or hurt caused by words as that caused by actual physical action. Now, of course, when it comes to actual intensity, I would argue that being punched in the face hurts a lot more than most people have never been punched in the face actually think. But nonetheless, absolutely, of course, words can break your heart. Uh, Words can be very sharp. But as I always have to point out, It's not a surprise that words can be sharp or hurt because free speech was one of our ways of replacing the way we traditionally, as as a species, solved a lot of disputes, which is through coercion and violence. So, yes, of course, like we replaced something that was literally violent with something that is deciding like how we run our society. You shouldn't be surprised. It's going to at times be kind of intense. But this new argument, this new form of the argument, will we'll say things w- with a straight face that, that, that are like, and I've seen this in a, in a couple different articles. We used to say that sticks and stones can break your bones, but names can never hurt you. But we now know that words can hurt and they can be, they can be stressful. They can cause a stress response. All this kind of stuff where it's, where it's like, okay, first of all, sticks and stones is a mantra you teach children in order to help them deal with the fact that words can sometimes hurt. Um, it wouldn't, it would be, it, the, the mantra wouldn't even make any sense um, if words could never hurt. That would be nonsensical. But more importantly, the, sort of arrogance to, 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 to assume that what John Stuart Mill, you know, a, a complete and utter genius, you know, a, a savant, he didn't get that words can sometimes hurt. That, that That's that's nonsensical. It's rewriting the past as if everybody who came before you is an idiot. But what we do consider, you know, speech as this way of settling disputes without reference to actual physical violence. Yeah, so what do you think is causing this? I mean, you know, again, when I was a kid, I'm an old geezer, born in 1953. Sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never hurt you. It's something we always said. And yes, you are right. It might hurt your feelings or, you know, you get dumped by your fifth grade girlfriend. You might have a good five minute cry or something. But the idea that a sharp word or even not even a sharp word, but just a word you intellectually disagreed with produces harm in some real sense strikes me as just a bit loony. (laughs) Well, you know, I I wrote a short book in 2014 uh, called Freedom From Speech. Uh, And and in in that, I I was just commenting on the sudden sort of intense uptick in in these particularly ridiculous sort of student-led cases that were just starting up in earnest around 2013, 2014. And in that, I I talked about what I call problems of comfort, um, which in Coddling the American Mind, my later book, I've referred to as problems of progress. And the point was that Steven Pinker is ultimately right that a lot of things are improving as history goes on. We're much more comfortable, you know, much more options for consuming art or food or, or all of these things. But there's a category of the kind of things that tend to get worse precisely because everything else is getting better. And one of those, as you get more comfortable, as you um, are able to, you know, avoid more pain and avoid more discomfort, it shouldn't be that much of a surprise that people become less comfortable with something as difficult as freedom of speech done correctly. Um, So I definitely thought that unless you have cultural pushback, it shouldn't be surprising that we become less tolerant 
of free speech as time goes by. So to, to a degree, I feel like there's some amount of regression to the mean. Free speech wasn't that well protected prior to, I'd say, you know, the mid 20th century uh, in the world. There's also this problem of progress idea that, you know, as a lot of other things get better, there's a tendency to become somewhat less tolerant. But then there's also just the fact that higher ed and K through 12 are incredibly ideologically monolithic. They lean very much to the left in K through 12. In higher ed, you know, just having done this long piece for Reason Magazine, only 3% of Harvard faculty, for example, self-identify as any kind of conservative. And the administrative class is even more monolithic at these schools, even less uh, politically diverse. Why does that matter? It matters because if you have too many people who agree on too much, it can lead to a sort of sacralized community, a, a kind of idea that all decent, good-thinking people think this way, which can lead to a kind of closed-mindedness and tribalism that can then kind of think of anybody who dissents from this as being like a heretic or, or, or a blasphemer. So I do think the lack of viewpoint diversity in higher ed, both among administrators um, and among teachers, has made things a lot worse. Yeah, I, I think that's a reasonable argument, though I wonder how sincere it is, or is it a passive-aggressive political power game played by wannabe Jacobins, right? Because they now have this vocabulary of harm, right, which they can wave like a shrunken head and say, no, you can't talk about anything because that could cause them harm, right? When in reality, that's just a passive-aggressive way of trying to suppress viewpoints other than their own, which was, of course, the tactic of the Robespierre and style Jacobin. Yeah, I think very early on in my in my first book on learning liberty, I talk about how as a general rule I don't believe in single motivations. <laughs> like I tend to think that most things that human beings do are are from mixed motivations. So I do try to talk about historical trends and uh, and about backsliding in some di- different directions and, and the well-intentioned aspect of it is always, you know, important to to to, to nod to. But a lot of this is also just you're giving me a rhetorical advantage over everybody else. I can actually get this professor who I don't like, who has opinions I don't like. I can ruin them, um, given the new rules, and I'm going to run with that. There are a lot of mixed motivations as a rule, and there's also just some you know, genuine bad faith behavior. And that's one of the reasons why I just had um, Comey German, who does our uh, scholars database for FIRE, we started collecting examples of attempts to get professors, for lack of a better word, canceled. We could only go back reliably to about 2015 for a variety of reasons. And from 2015 on up, and 2015 was already, like, things had already turned a lot worse in 2015. 2014 was really when we started seeing the big downward trends. We have seen something like 540 attempts to get professors fired or get their careers ruined. About two-thirds of those result in some kind of punishment against the professor. They are a combination, by the way, of, of, of right and left and none of the above, but more attempts coming from the left, unsurprisingly, given that's what campuses are dominated by. Then you even have people who will look at that and go, well, that's a tiny number. There are, you know, I think someone said there's something like two million teachers in the world. And I have literally no idea where where this number came from. Uh, But to put it in perspective, we're like, yeah, that 66 percent of the top 100 U.S. news schools had at least one of these incidents. And the top 10 schools in the country average about seven since 2015. Stanford, my alma mater, has 20 
Harvard had a dozen, even though they only have 3% conservatives. They're like obviously going to have to go to non-conservatives to try to get them to conform as well. Uh, And these are just things that happen to professors that we know about. This doesn't include students. So it's gotten very bad, very fast. And I've, I've never seen anything quite like it. Yeah, and, you know, 540 over a relatively short period of time, you know, compare that to something which is considered and rightfully a dark period in American free speech, which was the Hollywood blacklists, which was 100 people, maybe 200 at the most, right? And so the scale of this is considerably greater than that. And why the folks that will criticize the blacklist don't realize the significance of this, I'm just not sure. Yeah, I think only 10 people went to jail under the Sedition Act, and I think only about 20, 22 people were, were even brought up on charges of the, of the 1798 Sedition Act. And it's correct that we look back on that with shame. The lack of appreciation for the scale of numbers, and like you know, when I'm feeling particularly not nice about it, I end up explaining it's like you know, the Salem witch trials, that was 19 people were, were executed after that. But, you know, and then pointing out that, you know, Dreyfus was just one dude and Sacco and Vanzetti were two, like, like the, and we consider these shameful for a reason. Indeed. And I think this is another very important point. And, you know, truthfully, I was, you know, out of the left corner of my eye following this and knew it was not a good thing. But recently, as I've gotten involved with the MIT Free Speech Alliance, I have been digging into this and found that. What does not appear in the actual official statistics is probably even more disturbing than what does. The event that got me radicalized was the cancellation of Dorian Abbott's speech at MIT, the Carlson Lecture, which is a prestigious invited lecture, which he'd been invited to give. And it's about a very nerdy, as you'd expect from MIT, exotic topic, which is how to study the atmosphere of planets around stars other than our sun for the purpose of determining whether they might be suitable habitats for life. It's hard to find a more truly scientific topic that has no relationship to anything going on here on Earth, at least on an everyday basis. And because he had written, a, he was a co-author, written an essay in Newsweek magazine arguing against current implementations of the so-called diversity, equity, and inclusion program, and had proposed his alternative, Merit, Fairness, and Equality, a Twitter cancel mob formed up, blah, 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 blah. And very, very foolishly, the chairman of the Earth and Atmospheric and Planetary Sciences Department, with, as we have determined, the support of at least the provost and probably the president too, canceled Abbott's speech. This got a lot of publicity, an egregious case where someone who was talking about nothing that had to do with politics at all, an invited lecture, a prestigious invited lecture, was canceled because of a political view and not one that's outside the American mainstream. You know, one of the things I discovered when I was doing our research, that there was a recent Pew poll, which showed that 74% of Americans say the best person should always be hired for the job, irrespective of the impact on diversity. And Abbott's work was mostly about academic hiring, only later did he talk a little bit about, you know, undergraduate selection, et cetera. And so, you know, the main part of his argument is supported by 74% of people. So whether you agree with him or not, you got to say that it's well within the American mainstream. And so that was a really, really disturbing event to a, a whole bunch of us. And we have you know, formed the MIT Free Speech Alliance in reaction to that. And by the way, you can pick it up at MITFreeSpeech.org and see what we're talking about. 
But that was bad enough. I mean, look, you know, look, get your reaction to that, and then I'll go on to what we found when we dug deeper. Sure. Yeah. Well, we have an article up called "What Does MIT Stand For." We have it at thefire.org. We also have an audio version of it. We've been trying to do more of that. It's written, like I said, by Comey German, and it tries to put all of this stuff in perspective. And the thing that that it was kind of, I mean, I was really pleased that the Dorian Abbott situation was getting so much attention. Um, and I definitely think my friends at the Academic Freedom Alliance did a lot with with that early on, partially because in a very real sense, it's just not that remarkable of a case. We've seen disinvitation attempts, you know, at pretty much every other school, Virginia Tech, Johns Hopkins, Cal Poly, like all the technical schools, with the commendable exception of Caltech, in situations where, just like Dorian Abbott, what a professor was going to that campus to speak about wasn't even the same thing as what got got them canceled. So in some senses, like the MIT case is it's good because it's increased awareness of how common this problem is um, and seeing how shocked people were to discover this stuff was happening. Uh, you know, they hopefully they're even more shocked to find out that this stuff happens all the time. Yeah, I think part of the shockingness was this is MIT, supposedly the home of rational discourse, right? And MIT has been generally better behaved than most of the other schools, but not entirely. And certainly, you know, given how bad things have been at uh, places like Harvard and, and again, Stanford and, and Yale. It's something that should be a wake-up call to everybody who cares about some of our most storied institutions of higher ed. Yeah, and then, as I said, the case itself was bad enough, but as we formed our organization, started digging in, and we started finding informants, shall we say, we discovered things were way worse than we would have ever guessed. For instance, an anonymous faculty poll in a couple of ad hoc faculty meetings, which a significant percentage, but not all, of the faculty attended. This is a direct quote from the anonymous poll that was done at the meeting. Do you feel on an everyday basis, everyday basis, that your voice or the voices of your colleagues are constrained at MIT? More than 50% responded yes. That's mind-boggling to me that in a modern university, particularly one dedicated to truth like MIT, 50% of the faculty would feel on an everyday basis that their voice or their colleagues are constrained. And then even more amazing, are you worried given the current atmosphere in society that your voice or your colleagues' voices are increasingly in jeopardy? 80% responded yes to that. I mean, holy moly, that is frankly, just a very disturbing set of statistics. And when you balance it up against the um, lack of viewpoint diversity on campus, when you see, you know, the fact that it's 80%, that also includes people who, by any measure, would be considered pretty politically doctrinaire by the by the administration. Like, because sometimes when you see these you wonder what's going on with that 20%. Well, you know, in some cases, it's people who have no fear of ever getting in trouble because they're, they don't have the kind of opinions that the administration would ever be on the lookout for. But the gap between that number and the lack of viewpoint diversity, it means that there are a lot of people who once might have thought of themselves as very uncontroversial left of center professors who have pretty popular opinions on campus. Even they're getting canceled. Yeah, because again, traditional American liberalism is no longer considered tolerable by the cancel culture people, right? They're the enemy. 
I have been glad that the people who are not so great on free speech, or, or actually that's an understatement, have increasingly called themselves progressives instead of liberals. Um, I mean, I still think of myself as a liberal, but if you don't believe in any form of you know human freedom, you shouldn't use a word that means freedom. A yeah, very good point. And I still consider myself in many domains a political progressive, right? I actually worked for the Bernie campaign in 2016. On the other hand, I am even more a liberal in the spirit of John Stuart Mill, etc. And so I'm just feeling this incredible personal cognitive dissonance at a very strong level that the people that are I am sort of on the same team of politically in one domain I'm absolutely opposed to, and I believe that they're not just wrong, but they're on a dangerous proto-totalitarian road. And as I've talked to people at MIT, I find there's lots of other people like this who are certainly left of center in the traditional dimensions. Yes, I'm in favor of higher tax rate, people. I'm a high-income person. Tax the hell out of me, right? I'm in favor of more regulation of banking and finance under certain well-thought-out circumstances. But I'll be damned if I'm in favor of suppression of free speech. And that's just a bright line. This is the road to hell kind of thing. This is not something that we argue about. This is something that's a fundamental value of Western civilization. Yeah. And watching that be uh, among the fault lines, it's just, you know, there's no better word for it. It's just, it's scary. Um, And the intensity with which it's picked up uh, since Coddling the American Mind came out, because when the book came out in 2018, we we thought that things were pretty bad. But 2020 and 2021 were by far the worst years we had ever seen. Indeed. Now, another recent case, which you guys have written about, Ilya Shapiro at Georgetown. Why don't you tell us about that one? Yeah, the Ilya Shapiro case is definitely something of a Rorschach test. So Ilya Shapiro, he's a libertarian conservative thinker from the Cato Institute in D.C., very reliably libertarian, not reflexively conservative by any means. You know, he's a great constitutional thinker. I've known him for a very long time. And he just got hired by Georgetown. He left his great gig at Cato to go to Georgetown to be the executive director of their constitutional law program there. And, you know, to teach there as well. After Breyer stepped down, announced that he was retiring, Biden announced that he was going to nominate a black woman to Breyer's position on the Supreme Court. And this was something that, you know, you've seen people react somewhat negatively to that, even uh, people who aren't necessarily on the right side of the spectrum. And Ilya uh, wrote something saying he actually thought a Indian-American professor judge uh, should actually get the spot and saying that what's going to happen from this point on is since they know it was limited only to black women, that it's going to the position is necessarily going to end up not having the best person in that position. And therefore, it's going to go to and this is where he really got in trouble. A lesser black woman is the way he put it. But in context, it's really clear what he's saying is that he thinks that it was wrong of President Biden to limit the pool that he was going to draw from to, I guess, that'd be about six or seven percent of the population. And that by doing that, you're even sort of um, undermining the qualifications of the person you nominate. And then, you know, he also recommended a progressive uh, Indian-American judge that he, that he thought would be better. And one of the reasons why that bears repeating is because people went very quickly, as is common on campus, to accuse Ilya of white supremacy. 
a term that is pretty badly abused on campus these days. And it doesn't make a great deal of sense that someone who was recommending a progressive Indian American for the position is, you know, actually a white supremacist. But the inartfulness of the tweet led Ilya to apologize and to take it down and try to explain where he's coming from. But again, in context, you have to be pretty uncharitable to try to read that he was actually saying, as some of the people who were were against him said, it's like, well, this is saying that all black women are are lesser. It's like, you you really can't, in in all honesty, like look at that tweet and, and come away sure that that's actually what Ilya was saying. But so we've been fighting this, you know, almost since he first took down the tweet because, you know, he contacted us at fire pretty like almost immediately because he knew his his job was on the line. We were able to organize a signing campaign for professors all over the country. We got uh, uh, several hundred uh, signatures of prominent professors, including people like Paul Bloom and Eugene Volokh and I think Steve Pinker, for example, to say he should not be fired. Um, I wrote something in the Washington Post about this, and I did make the point you know, in the Washington Post article that 76% of people polled like didn't particularly like that, that, that Biden framed it that way and thought that the job should be open to anybody. And that's also like 54% of Democrats thought that. So and I, you, always, you always have to plug that in these days because a lot of the things that are considered completely beyond the pale on campus can be relatively mainstream positions in the rest of the country. So, and the public needs to understand that that things that you know you wouldn't bat an eye at off campus are treated as if they're completely blasphemous on campus. So, there's no resolution there yet. They did suspend him, and they're looking into what they should do about it. I think that if there wasn't enough pushback, he would definitely be out of a job. But we've been able to help bring a lot of pushback. We're helping him in a variety of ways. But uh, we'll, we'll see what, what Georgetown finally decides. Uh, hopefully, um, once things have calmed down a little bit, they'll be able to say, OK, you know, we probably shouldn't have suspended you. But, you know, we'll see. I thought it, things were going to go in the right direction previously and been terribly disappointed. So the move is now to Georgetown. Yeah, I looked into it when it hit the wires and I said, yeah, that was an inelegant expression, right? You know, a lesser black woman, uh, probably not the wisest phraseology, right? But if you look at the full context, it's absurd to fire someone over what is at worst an inelegant phraseology. I mean, what the fuck is wrong with people to even think that? I mean, it's just like these people are nuts. Yeah. And the thing is, there's a weird combination of it's one, a lot of students today and a lot of professors, you know, um, even have been around an environment where there's such a high premium on not offending anyone, but particularly offending anybody who might be considered part of a victim group. Uh, this is something that my co-author Jonathan Haidt pointed out was that um, increasingly on the left, there's a sort of focus on one aspect of, of morality, which is just not to be offensive or not to do anything that could be considered not showing care towards people in underserved minority groups and that a lot of sort of modern lefty morality can be pretty well explained by that. So they have they do have a little bit of this unfortunately this is the way I think people people are coming up currently. But there's also the cynical part of it that there were surely plenty of people who didn't want a new conservative being added to the faculty at Georgetown so they saw an opening. Yep. 
you know, again, I mentioned that earlier, you know, as a person who always thinks in terms of strategy and tactics, I go, hmm, you know, if I had that tactic, I might abuse it too, right? And that's the problem of essentially having this doctrine that wrong think is a means to get rid of people, right? That a lot of people we don't like, but we don't go after them because of the way they think. But that is not the new doctrine. Now, moving out a little bit about from the charter of fire, which is education, it's also true, I would say, in the wider culture, particularly from people on the progressive side, but also on the right, too. But I would say a lot of the most obnoxious ones are on the left these days, that there's just a decline in support for free speech more widely. When I remind people of what American free speech actually legally entails, What's the famous case with the Klansmen in Ohio? Brandenburg v. Ohio, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Very famous case. I posted that on Twitter and people go, what? How could this possibly be? Right? And I also pointed out to them that while at a unanimous ruling, it appears that unsigned, the principal architects were Fortis, Douglas, and Black, three strong progressives, right? So here was, you know, a strong progressive position for extremely radical free speech and not that long ago. And now when people even realize that that's the current state of the law, they just can't believe it. Yeah. Well, and there's a case that your listeners might not know about called Papish. It's a 1973 case defending Barbara Papish, who was kicked out of her school for having a cartoon when she was, uh, she thought some police officers got off the hook for what she could, what she thought was a police brutality. So she ran a cartoon that showed police officers raping the Statue of Liberty and the Goddess of Justice. Um, it and that's what that was ultimately the thing that got her got her kicked out of school. And what's you know, uh, and I, I bring this up here when I'm on campus making the point that if you were to show that cartoon on campus, that would probably be a fire case. Uh, it would only be the framing of saying, no, this is what the Supreme Court says is protected on campus. And there, it really shows how much our thinking has flipped on, on, on free speech. The argument from the Supreme Court is the one, you know, I came up with, which is that, or when I was growing up, was the popular one, that if anything, free speech should be more protected on campus because there's a presumption that, one, you're all adults, and two, that the whole function of here is to think harder, so being provoked actually can help that sometimes, that, you, you know, you being offended is, is irrelevant to whether or not something is true. So all of these reasons, it was actually supposed to be considered even more protective of free speech. But over the past couple of decades, that mentality has changed so that now professors and deans and administrators will take for granted that, of course, speech is not as protected on campus as it is off because we have to protect the sensibilities of our students. And this goes back to this coddling of the American mind where, you know, I was a business guy for 25, almost 30 years. Hey, you basically tried to give your customer what you want. I've had some folks, including Jonathan Haidt tell me that he believes that many of the university presidents aren't nearly as woke as they act, but are frankly just appealing to their clientele. Yep. No, agreed. And that's something that does drive me nuts about a lot of university presidents these days, that the schools that actually have been comparatively good about free speech, it always has to come from the top ultimately. So President Zimmer at University of Chicago was a real leader in terms of free speech and academic freedom. Mitch Daniels is at Purdue. The president of Arizona State University has been really, uh, really great on this. But 
it seems like most other presidents have kind of left themselves off the hook saying like, well, you know, we saw what happened to Larry Summers, you know, back in 2006. So we won't try to wade into controversy. We won't really try to lead from the top on this stuff. And if someone wants to, you know, go after a professor for saying something uh, obnoxious, you know, we might say something if we really, really have to. And meanwhile, for the first 10 years of my career, 2001 to like 20, 2010, it was not uncommon for a university president to put an end to a push to get a professor or student punished by simply going on the record and saying, like, listen, you know, I remember one happening at, at Penn State w- with the university president saying, like, listen, we thought that this there was a party where the whole goal was to be intentionally offensive. And he talks about how it was, you know, some of these images were deeply offensive, but you, you absolutely have a First Amendment right to be offensive. I wish more university presidents would be willing to do that. They could actually save themselves longer term headaches if they always follow that and follow that consistently. But too many presidents are scared of losing their, you know, oftentimes more than one million dollar jobs. Yep. I made the point in a letter I wrote to the MIT president, which is you're just setting yourself up for endless battles when you bend the knee to these woke mobs on Twitter. If you would just say, we're not doing that in the way Zimmer did at University of Chicago when Dorian Abbott came under fire there, it just shuts the whole thing down. You know, you're not constantly in these bullshit fights. If you just say, that's not our job. We don't do that, right? We are a free speech honoring institution. And in fact, one of our demands at the MIT Free Speech Alliance is that MIT adopts Chicago's principles, which are a very well thought through and nuanced statement of what a university ought to do and not do with respect to free speech. That's one of the things that FIRE recommends. We've helped encourage almost 80 schools adopt Chicago statement. But I have a full list of like five things that every president can do to make their environment better for free speech, which you can find on the FIRE website. But just very quickly there, you know, stand up for faculty and students early and often. Dump your speech codes, which FIRE can help you with. A lot of schools still have them. Adopt the Chicago statement or something like it. And then the other two are explain freedom of speech and inquiry during orientation. And amazingly, most schools don't do this. I think Chicago and and Purdue uh, do this now, but they're they're the only two. And poll them. Poll your students and professors to see what the atmosphere on on campus is like. And so people can get so cynical about the situation on campus. But I'm like, okay, before you're allowed to be cynical at all, if you haven't done the following five things, ask your alma mater president to do these following five things. You have no right to complain. I have, however, increasingly been saying a sixth thing, which is also invest in innovative workarounds that can identify the best and bright, brightest without having to go to traditional college in the first place. I think that any meaningful competition with the major fancy schools in the country could get them to clean up their act surprisingly quickly. And what's the new one down there in Austin? What's the name of that one? Just University of Austin. Yeah, University of Austin, a great attempt to turn the tables a little bit on the elite education scam. A worthwhile experiment, if, the, if there ever was one. I remember I was actually invited on Jane Coaston's New York Times podcast to talk about it. I thought it was funny because there was definitely a little bit of like, a, you know, will this work? You know, won't this just end up like a, a, a different kind of echo chamber? And it's like, yeah, could it? Sure. But we should all be pulling for it because even just on expensiveness alone, even just on hyper and 
administrative bloat and tuition, even if those were the only issues facing college, you should still, you know, uh, be trying alternatives. Add rigor to that and it gets even more serious. And then add to the fact that the, the ideological intolerance and the harm that I think that's having to our overall society, I think the argument for trying every form of experimentation with new educational models is the way to go. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense to me. And I was a working class kid. My dad was a Washington, D.C. cop. I was the first person to go to college at our family tree. And when I went to MIT in 1971, four years living on campus, total expense, $16,000, people. Today, it's almost $300,000. And I, I checked it with respect to inflation, and it's now 4X as expensive, 4X as expensive to go to MIT after you control for inflation than it was 1971 to 75. And while the only other category that's exploded like that is medicine, at least in medicine, they can do lots of new things. As far as I can tell, by every objective measure, the education people are getting in elite colleges today is no better and probably worse than they were getting in 1975. Yeah. Well, in terms of the amount of hours that people spend studying, I'm sure that MIT is somewhat better than, than other schools, but the trend is, is overwhelmingly down. It is kind of disheartening. And when you look at the majors that have the lowest amount of time spent studying, one of them is actually education schools, which is particularly distressing because education schools are the places that produce a lot of our K through 12 teachers, but also a lot of the campus administrators disproportionately come from education schools. So they're sort of a key part of the problem. And they also have one of the biggest problems with lack of rigor and grade inflation. Yeah, indeed. Another thing I'd like to call out here is we talked about college presidents being part of the problem and perhaps in some cases just cynically because they're you know appealing to their customers or to their faculty. But there's a countervailing force, which is alumni, right? Many colleges are dependent on alumni giving. And the MIT Free Speech Alliance turned out to just be a spontaneously generated uh, alumni-led, though it includes some faculty and some students. And we quickly discovered that there was a broader organization called the Alumni Free Speech Alliance. You can check them out at alumnifreespeechalliance.com. And as always, the link to their website will be on our episode page at jimrucho.com. And this is a really interesting and useful group. MIT, when we formed up, I think there was five universities already a member. We became sixth or seventh, and now it includes Cornell, Davidson, Lafayette, MIT, Princeton, University of North Carolina, University of Virginia, Virginia Military Institute, Washington and Lee, Wooford and Yale, you know, all first-rate schools, proud to say three of them in my state of Virginia where I live. And the people at AFSA, as we call it, Alumni Free Speech Association, say they've had inbound inquiries from over a hundred other alumni groups associated with universities that want to start their own free speech alliance. So if you feel that your alma mater has gone to hell in the area of protecting free speech, free inquiry, and viewpoint diversity, See if you can find some of your friends to get together and see what the Alumni Free Speech Alliance is about. And perhaps you can set up an organization to try to turn things around at your school. Your listeners can also contact thefire.org. We've been working with the alumni group as well. And we have our own people um, trying to make campuses better for free speech on multiple levels as well. Cool. Well, last thing here before we roll out, in Coddling of the American Mind, you talk about K-12 education. Parents are raising children. 
What should parents be doing in helping their children develop a stronger realization of the importance of free speech to basically everything about our civilization? Are you a parent, by the way? I am. I, I have a four and a, a four-year-old boy named Maxwell for James Clerk Maxwell, and a six-year-old boy named Benjamin for Benjamin Franklin. All right, that's got great references. Yeah, I've got a daughter, and I now have a granddaughter. So this is a real question. What would you advise parents and how how to treat these issues? Well, funnily enough, I think any amount of fostering childhood resilience um, and independence can help with this. I, I think that one of the one of the most surprising things in writing Coddling the American Mind, um, we weren't expecting it to become quite so much of a parenting book. As we did more research, we realized that, as we've realized even more recently, that a lot of the anxiety, you know, among young kids is partially um you know, it comes from their parents being so anxious, particularly about the competitive, you know, getting them into a fancy school and making sure that they do everything right. It can be really exhausting. You know, staying in the American upper classes is uh, can be challenging. There's a great book called The Meritocracy Tap about this. And, you know, making sure that they have unstructured playtime was also surprising, uh, but that's getting stronger and stronger, that the pushing academics down to even preschool is disastrous. It, this is not good for kids. You're just going to end up diagnosing usually more boys with ADHD. Um, if you try to get them to sit in chairs, they're just not meant to sit in chairs and study stuff at that age. So there's lots of stuff you can do from early on. When it comes to, you know, specifically for freedom of speech, I mean, you know, practice it. Have discussions in your own house. Most of all, try to foster curiosity about what other people think. Because, yes, free speech is, is counterintuitive in a very real sense. When I say this, people go, wait, no, I can intuit, you know, my right to free speech. It's like, right, your right to free speech. Everybody understands why they should have free speech. But the human mind is incredibly adept at coming up with arguments about why that person over there shouldn't have it. So curiosity is one of the great antidotes to this kind of stuff about and also know what's going on on campus. Genuinely wanting to know where people are coming from, even if it's, you know, quote unquote bad, even if it's troubling, is actually a great intellectual habit. I wish every student did debate at some point in school, and I wish they actually made a point of uh, take, taking the opposite side from what they actually believe uh, in at least some arguments. And by school, I mean, you know, high school. FIRE also does a lot of, we have our curriculum for K-12 through teachers. Uh, we're trying to set, to set up a kind of boot camp kind of thing for before people uh, head off to college. But yeah, I mean, introducing them to the habit of being curious about what people think and being able to, you know, argue with people with whom they disagree, but productively, you know, you, you can start that at a pretty early age. Well, that's really good advice. I want to thank you, Greg. Greg Lukianoff from FIRE, that's thefire.org, for a really good and enlightening conversation about these issues. Thanks so much for having me, Jim. Audio production and editing by Andrew Blevins Productions. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.